This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. This is Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Welcome to our podcast. Today we have a uh, special edition. We're pleased to bring you a full-length interview with uh, Professor David DeRoche from the Near East South Asia Strategic Studies Center in Washington, D.C. And Dave, uh, welcome to Nashville. Thank you, Pat. Great to be here. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the Middle East and uh, a, an area of the world uh, very familiar to Dave. He teaches uh, uh, foreign uh, officer courses at, uh, at the NISA Center and travels uh, widely in the Gulf, just back from a week in Saudi Arabia, and uh, also does a lot of uh, talking on the conference circuit. That's why he's here in Nashville as one of our distinguished visiting speakers, talking to college groups, uh, Town Hall at Belmont University and the International Business Council at the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce tomorrow morning. Uh, well, Dave, uh, you've, you've been in Nashville a, a whole uh, 18 hours, so what, what do you think so far? Oh, I love it. I mean, the, the hockey arena is one of the best ones I've ever been in. The city has a, a healthy vibe. You can feel growth and you can feel civic pride everywhere. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing. It's, it's hard to bottle. It's hard to replicate, or I'm sure everybody else would do it. Well, it's uh, it's a great place to live, and we're uh, we're pleased to be here. And having lived in Washington for for many years, I I think I'm satisfied here, and and uh, uh, look forward to welcoming uh, you and your family back to to spend more time uh, to visit uh, after this this short stay. I, I think you've seen enough to perhaps want to come back. Uh, today we're uh, we're going to talk with uh, with Dave about uh, Middle East uh, affairs, and we're going to. Uh, Start with uh, sort of a tour de horizon of uh, what what uh, the context and background of where the United States finds itself in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East uh, as we move forward in, in a number of challenging areas, and then we'll uh, we'll dive a little more deeply uh, into uh, some of the specific uh, issues that uh, concern U.S. Uh, policymakers. Uh, Dave is uh, a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Uh, he's an Army Ranger, did a career. He was a uh, uh, Army Ranger and an airborne uh, soldier, served in the Afghanistan, and he tells me that he has jumped out of airplanes 106 times. How, how's that uh, on the, the ankles and knees, uh, Dave? The, the knees are great. The ankles are shot. Oh, okay. Not, not unexpected. It, there's got to be some degree of wear and tear in, in, uh, in all of that. Uh, he has uh, worked in uh, policy positions in the Pentagon and elsewhere in Washington, the Pentagon, Homeland Security. He was chief of the Arabian uh, Division at uh, the Pentagon uh, in the, the policy arena, uh, and now he's at the Near East South Asia Center, uh, where he uh, uh, does a lot of uh, putting into practice uh, some of the, uh, uh, the, the seminars and, and other professional education things for international students and, and others in, uh, in Washington, helping them understand what's going on in uh, the Middle East. And that's, that's why he's here with us in Nashville, and we appreciate uh, his time uh, spent with us. Dave, why don't you uh, start out with uh, 
uh, your overview of the context and background of, of where the United States uh, finds itself in the Middle East. I know we've had uh, a history of uh, decades of uh, military involvement and our economic ties with uh, a number of the nations in the Middle East go back uh, much further uh, post-World War II, the, the finding of uh, oil and gas and uh, U.S. investment and trade in, in the region. Uh, the military involvement uh, probably more largely after the Iranian Revolution in 79. But American ties in the Middle East are probably deeper and more widespread than most uh, people uh, understand. Can you give us uh, a, a snapshot of uh, the American engagement in the Middle East and, and uh, enough context that we can perhaps put into uh, shape what's going on there now? Yeah. Um, well, it goes, you know, how far back do you want to go? I mean, it's surprisingly positive. The first modern universities in the Middle East were set up by American missionaries, the American University of Beirut, uh, which um, was, I believe, at the initial founding of the UN, they were second only to Harvard in terms of alumni present at the United Nations. Um, the United States historically had a very good reputation, uh, particularly around the time of the Conference of Versailles when President Wilson was um, championing national determination. Um, for a while, the problem of Palestine, uh, one of the preferred solutions was to put it under a disinterested American oversight. Um, there was the King Crane Commission made up of American notables that uh, toured the region and came up with recommendations for how it would work. Um, we, came, we, we became involved economically uh, in Saudi Arabia in the late 30s as a result of oil discoveries, which we carried out in areas that the British considered to be uneconomical. Um, the British dominated all the other countries of the Gulf, uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, what, what's now called the United Arab Emirates, Qatar. Um, Saudi Arabia was left over because it was worthless, and that's where we pretty much formed our uh, economic base. Although it's, it's interesting, in World War II, when the Italians uh, accidentally bombed uh, Dahran, uh, the oil companies asked for American soldiers, and we said, sorry, can't, uh, can't spare it, not worth defending, giving what else we had to do. When a base was initially was finally established in um, Saudi Arabia towards the end of World War II, it was not to protect oil fields, it was as a uh, aircraft ferrying stop, uh, bringing aircraft to uh, India uh, from the United States. So uh, that was pretty much universally positive. Then you had a couple of developments afterwards, the start of the Cold War, and of course the independence of Israel. Uh, the um, American support for the formation of Israel um, so caused some stress, but less than you would think. Um, we still maintain cordial, although rather low-key relations with most of the major Arab states. The main exception, of course, um, when you had the initial wave of revolutions, decolonization, uh, that was tough for the United States. Egypt, Iraq after the revolution, uh, and of course Iran after their own revolution became um, more or less hostile, or at least uh, non-aligned in a true sense towards the United States. But we've always had a close economic relationship and security relationship with most of the countries of the Gulf, and that continues. Um, there's been a certain amount of creative hypocrisy in our relationship. We've had this idea that we've had, we'd have a security relationship and we'd have an economic relationship and eventually it would lead towards reform. What's uh, unusual now is that uh, reform is at the top of most people's agenda in the West. The lack of reform is, is glaringly obvious, and while there have been some uh, changes, most notably women being allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, um, 
the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the recent incarceration of the UK um, graduate student Matthew Hedges in the UAE, has kind of shined a, a harsh light on these regimes. And these regimes are, um, you know, having a problem for the first time with the West. So it's an interesting time. Well, we've had uh, uh, important relations with a, a number of countries in in the Arab region, uh, Egypt and uh, countries in the Levant, uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean area. But uh, key, key relationships uh, developed with Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states. Um, I know uh, towards the end of World War II, President Roosevelt met with uh, Ibn Saud, the, the first king of, of modern uh, Saudi Arabia, and that was the formation of the government-to-government relationship and and what has become conventional wisdom of the relationship uh, built, uh, uh, the exchange of uh, security for uh, energy uh, stability and, and security, the, the oil uh, coming out of the Gulf and, and U.S. assurances of uh, security in, in the region. And that, that's led to, uh, to decades of uh, strong relations and military-to-military ties and uh, clearly uh, Desert Storm, uh, was was probably the hallmark of that relationship where the, the kingdom felt threatened and invited in half a million American troops to uh, to resist Saddam Hussein and, and eventually push back the invasion of Kuwait. Um, I know we have uh, military relations at the Saudi Arabian National Guard and, and the uh, Ministry of Defense and also uh, the Ministry of the Interior. There's, there's a relationship can you talk a little bit about uh, how American, uh, the government to government, the military to military relationship has, uh, has taken root and become a, a critical element in, in uh, the partnership with countries like Saudi Arabia? Yeah, with Saudi Arabia, uh, with the United Arab Emirates, uh, we have large standing uh, missions that are there to train indigenous forces. Um, the Ministry of the Interior program that you mentioned with Saudi Arabia is, is unique around the world. We, I don't think we have another... Um, program that has military training, Ministry of the Interior Forces in peacetime anywhere else in the world. Uh, with the UAE, we have a, a long-standing relationship that's run through the U.S. Marine Corps. It's been around for about five years. Doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's pretty important. And then we have uh, multi-service programs with uh, both the Saudi Arabian uh, Ministry of Defense Forces as well as the Saudi Arabian National Guard, and that's been in place. The MOD one has been in place since the 50s, and the National Guard, I think, since the 70s. Um, so they're very long-established programs. Um, it's, it's almost a cliche. Whenever there's a crisis in uh, relations between the United States and a, and a country that is an ally or a security partner, um, if you read the reports, they always say, well, the military-to-military relationship is good. It's everything else that's bad. And one of the points I always point out, you know, one of the things I make as a as a Washington insider, swamp dweller, is if you have a military relationship, it's usually good. Um, right. It's it's a binary thing. It's either good or it just doesn't exist. Um, so uh, we do that, and we do have a certain amount of influence, I think, in countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, in Egypt, uh, there's a paradoxical situation where we have a large program, we provide a lot of funding, but I don't think we get a whole lot of influence for that. And I, I think that's because... Um, those programs arose out of the Camp David Accords, and I think that the Egyptians view that as something that they've earned, not something that they get from us. They think that they've earned it for making peace with uh, Israel. Um, but by and large... So it's a payoff rather than a partnership. 
Well, it's a transactional. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't characterize it quite that way, but it, it's, I think they view it as something they've earned, and we view it as something we give them. Um, and you, you see that from time to time. There's, there's friction in the relationship with Egypt. Um, you know, we talk about uh, different military aspects of it, but um, when you look at the amount of equipment that Egypt has, has received from the United States, I've, I've asked a number of senior uh, mil American military officials who've served in Egypt, you know, what is that stuff for? And I've never received a good answer. Uh, you know, what are these tanks for? You know, when, when, when Egypt's primary security challenge is a rather low-level insurgency in the Sinai, many of whose leaders have defected from the Egyptian security forces, you have to ask yourself what use is an F-16 against them. So, so you know, there's, there's some problems. Some of our partners in the past, particularly, have been more focused on receiving equipment than building capacity. That has changed. Um, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia have uh, established war colleges and staff colleges, and they've reached out to my institution and other American military institutions for um, instructional services to help them build their curriculum, become real accredited uh, institutions that teach and inculcate critical thinking. Um, the, there's a realization that just equipment is not enough. And uh, that's kind of a generational shift. If you read a lot of the scholarship from about 10 years ago, um, it's very dismissive of, of our partners, in particular the uh, Saudis. Um, now what we're seeing is people who want to do training, there's modernization. Um, and parallel to that on the economic front, there's a move to diversify these economies away from hydrocarbons, from oil and energy exports, towards true modern economies. Um, that's going to be hard, but it's it's an interesting time to be looking at the, at the area. Uh, just a reminder, uh, we're uh, the Global Tennessee Podcast, and uh, you're listening to Pat Ryan from Tennessee World Affairs Council and Professor David DeRoche from the Near East uh, South Asia Center in Washington. And uh, uh, Dave, this morning when you spoke at Lipscomb University, you caveated your remarks that uh, they were yours and, and not those of the U.S. government, I assume, that uh, obtains uh, currently. Thank you for reminding me of that, Pat. <laughs> yes, these are, this is, these are my opinions only, and they don't represent any branch of the U.S. government. So anybody uh, wishing to, this is on the record, so if you want to obviously uh, uh, quote from here, uh, please uh, keep that in mind that, uh, that uh, Professor DeRoche is, is speaking for himself. Uh, as am I. Uh, and uh, Dave, we, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the milestones in uh, developments in the Middle East that the U.S. was involved in in a military capacity and probably none more significant than the 2003 invasion of, of Iraq. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that has changed the landscape uh, formally, uh, you know, even, even considering Desert Storm, we had a massive deployment, but then Everybody packed up and went home. There were prepositioning forces left behind and some residual uh, presence. The uh, air wing at Dharan to enforce the no-fly zone in, in southern Iraq, uh, support the Patriot batteries and, and those kinds of things. But it seems that uh, 2003 uh, opened the can to never-ending deployments. We now have troops in uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, the Gulf, a variety of uh, Gulf partners, uh, Qatar, a major base, uh, troops uh, operating, according to press reports, uh, in uh, in Yemen, special operations uh, deployments, a, a very vigorous 
deployment in the Horn of Africa. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the uh, the 2003 experience really overhauled the uh, the military uh, 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 experience and and uh, expeditionary uh, nature of the military presence in in the region? Yeah, um, that's a, that's a real interesting point. I think we're still wrestling with the, the uh, fallout from the invasion of Iraq, and, and but the biggest impact wasn't really military; it was political. And that's that our security partners in the region, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, um, they were all against the invasion of Iraq. And uh, they, uh, or at least they now say they were against it at the time. And uh, they said, well, the United States was determined to do it. They had very good relations with the George W. Bush administration. Um, they were supportive of um, the American involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, they realized the need for that. I was in Afghanistan uh, in 2002 alongside, uh, there were Emirati Special Forces. There was an Egyptian uh, and a Jordanian uh, hospital deployed there, military hospital. So there was a, 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 a real coalition. Iraq was different. And I think that um, uh, when you looked at the fallout of that, almost every uh, security analyst in the Gulf, every Arab security analyst, uh, sums it up and says, you know, you guys were foolish, you were naive, you moved in, you took a country that was problematic but was a strong bulwark against Iran, which they all view as expansionist, and uh, you handed it over to Iran. So uh, politically, I think it caused those countries to realize, oh my gosh, the Americans either are not smart enough or just don't take our own or our security considerations into, into account. And that coincided with the development of a very large military buildup. There was a, re a realization that uh, the countries of the Gulf were, would have to depend upon themselves to some extent uh, for defense against what they saw as a uh, rapacious, and continue to see as a rapacious, expansionist, uh, revolutionary Iranian state that is, is intent on upsetting uh, the existing power structure in, in the region. Militarily, um, the, the collapse of the Iraqi state um, freed up, I think, a lot of Iranian uh, resources. And, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the 2003 uh, invasion, you always had a, a robust Iranian presence in Lebanon, for example. Uh, but that's expanded drastically. And resources that had to confront the Iraqi army now, uh, you know, are doing it on a much lower basis. They're doing it from within Iraq instead of outside Iraq. You have the deployment of um, various uh, Iranian-sponsored directed militias drawn from Iraqis, from Syrians, from Afghans, from Pakistanis uh, fighting in Syria. And you have seen uh, an increase in support for the Houthis uh, who are Shia in uh, Yemen as well. Um, so it's, but but the, the fundamental impact, I think, is political and a lack of trust in the United States to do the right thing uh, from a geopolitical point of view. Now, there were a couple of uh, American activities that uh, may have contributed to that lack of trust. One of them during the Obama administration was the so-called pivot to Asia. And I know that uh, there was a lot of concern that, that among the Arab Gulf partners that uh, the pivot meant... America was moving out, and, and uh, repeated visits by secretaries of defense and chairman of the Joint Chiefs and so forth uh, sought to uh, 
reassure our Gulf allies that we were not pivoting to Asia and leaving the Middle East behind. That would clearly had a mission and interest there. Uh, and then more recently, the uh, Trump administration uh, is is apparently on uh, a very strong footing with uh, the uh, the Crown Prince and the King of Saudi Arabia, and uh, has uh, sought to uh, uh, resolve some of the the problems. For example, the the Qatar embargo and, and other issues. So uh, seems to be. Um, enjoying a good relationship with the Gulf allies, but occasionally you hear concerns about um, what's going on in the White House in, in, in terms of uh, the focus on foreign policy and, and the coherence of uh, foreign policy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how these uh, signals, uh, both the uh, pivot to Asia and uh, uh, what some what some critics would say would be an incoherent uh, policy uh, in the current administration towards the Gulf, how, how that plays out in the minds. And I know you, you have a lot of experience with, uh, with military officials and others in, in the region. Yeah. Well, the pivot, it, it's really remarkable to me, given how good the Obama administration generally was at messaging, how, to, how uh, disciplined they were, that the pivot is still incredibly misunderstood around the world. Um, the pivot was away from Europe, not from the Middle East. And when you look at what actually happened, um, what you saw was a drawdown of U.S. forces in Europe. Um, you saw no decrease from U.S. forces in the Gulf, uh, and you saw only a marginal increase in U.S. forces in the Pacific. I think there was the uh, establishment of enhanced basing rights at Singapore and a, 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 a like rotational deployment of U.S. Marines in Darwin, Australia. But there wasn't, like, you know, building new harbors. There wasn't hardening aircraft facilities in Guam or Okinawa or anything like that. Um, there was an overall decrease in, of forces in the Gulf, but they were forces that were there um, primarily to sustain combat operations in Iraq, which were winding down, and combat operations in Afghanistan, which, you know, decreased rapidly as well. Um, Folks in the Gulf, though, thought, oh my gosh, you're leaving us. And um, the, the announcement of the pivot really was a disaster for the Obama administration. Right after the announcement, they had a NATO summit in Chicago, and they had to walk the cat backwards and, and repackage it as a rebalancing because the NATO allies were uh, livid. Um, and I, I actually you know, pointed out that uh, you know, by 2014, the United States had no tanks in Europe, two brigades of tanks in the Gulf that the pivot was actually away from Europe, that the Gulf became more important to the United States. And I gave in that talk for about five years, sometimes to the same audience. And, and they still, it still came as a revelation because right. it was just generally accepted it wasn't there. If you go forward to the um, Trump administration, which you know um, is much less disciplined on its messaging, which is somewhat chaotic in personnel. There's been a lot of turnover. There's been a lot of key positions unfilled. Uh, argument over who's responsible for that. But um, one thing that, uh, from the Gulf perspective, they have been coherent in their confrontation with Iran. And that that actually has been favorably received in the Gulf. Um, even things that uh, they don't like, they like the idea that uh, apparently it is very important to President Trump that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. Um, so you know, pretty much since I've been shaving, 
uh, every presidential candidate for every major party said he's going to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Nobody in the Middle East wanted that to happen, particularly in the Arab countries of the Middle East. You know, that's viewed as a disaster. Um, but they all said they were going to do it. And then once they took uh, the presidency, they said, oh, my gosh, this is more complicated than I thought. Um, Trump's the first guy to actually do that. And I think there is a respect for him keeping his word. Uh, Trump's um, approach to Iran which uh, in the Gulf was seen, it was seen that um, the United States was basically um, gambling away their security interests, Gulf security interests, and we were either uh, negligent, naive, or um, underhanded in doing so. Um, Trump reversed that, and he has been coherent on that. He has been um, uniform. Of course, Mike Pompeo uh, led the opposition to the Iran deal while he was still a member of Congress. Uh, that was very, very favorably received uh, in there. Um, you know, now that uh, uh, the House of Representatives is lost, we'll see if, if you still get this. But in general, they appreciate his uh, uh, openness and straightforwardness. Of course, there's, you know, the erratic nature of, of governing by tweets. But um, they recognize that, you know, he's a guy who seems to want to be able to check off a list of campaign promises. And some of those campaign promises are very important to them. Complicated place. Uh, again, a reminder, this is Global Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee World Affairs Council in association with the Belmont University's Center for International Business and the National Area Chamber of Commerce. We're talking with uh, Professor David DeRoche from the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C. He's in Nashville visiting the Tennessee World Affairs Council for speaking engagements as part of the Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program. And we're very pleased to uh, to have uh, David here with us. Uh, David, uh, you talked a little bit about uh, the change in the models, uh, the templates that, uh, that governments, uh, actors in, in the Gulf, we're looking at. Uh, can, can you go into a little detail in explaining that to our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So from about 1979, the, the fundamentalist siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, uh, when Saudi Arabia was forced to uh, take a look at how it operated itself, how it conducted business, until uh, fairly recently, there were, there was, the conflict on governance was between the Western liberal model, uh, which was, you know, open markets, um, building up a, a security relationship in a collective form and uh, with the idea that there would be a gradual um, loosening of restrictions on individual rights moving towards a more Western model um, and a traditional model of, of uh, you know, Emirates and uh, uh, states being run as they have been run, you know, hundreds of years ago in the past and monarchies uh, with rights that were granted, not, not uh, inherent. Since the rise of China as a real economic powerhouse and with the realization that, you know, uh, China is now exporting automobiles, you see Chinese automobiles all over the Middle East, you see uh, a level of technological sophistication, cell phones, things like that, you know, China no longer is a source for, you know, cheap plastic products, it's, it's high-tech things. And the rulers in the Gulf looked at this and said, my gosh, this country has very quickly become incredibly rich not due to natural resources, but due to human effort. They have uh, become powerful. They um, have raised the standard of life for uh, many of their citizens, and they've done it without any political liberalization at all. 
So this model of authoritarian capitalism, um, that seems very attractive. And it's kind of vying with the classical American liberal, small L liberal model uh, for supremacy in the Gulf. If you look at uh, things like the Saudi Vision 2030 plan, it talks about transitioning the entire Saudi economy from one that's based on the you know refinement export of, of oil, uh, a rentier system, to a true knowledge-based, modern, world-class economy where people work in different fields and you know produce value added. It's it's like a, a big Singapore is what they're shooting for, uh, but there's no mention of political liberalism. Um, so the many of the Gulf countries kind of view what we have. Um, you know, they, they, they were treating it sort of as an a la carte menu and hoping that they could get three items and not have to get <laughs> Brussels sprouts. Uh, but the Chinese model uh, is very attractive. And, and honestly, uh, I don't think we've been active enough in countering that. Well, that's, uh, that's a, the, the more you peel back that onion, the, the, the more you come to realize that uh, it's not just the Middle East, but a lot of, uh, a lot of countries around the world are starting to to look in that direction, and uh, we see the the uh, rise in populism and right wing governments in, in various parts of the world yeah. that are questioning the uh, the liberal democratic model, not just uh, the Middle East. And, and clearly, the Middle East is looking for something new and different because what they've been working with, uh, in large part, uh, has not worked, and that was clearly demonstrated by the the frustrations that uh, exploded into the Arab Spring in, in 2011. Exactly. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit, and uh, I, I know people are interested in what's going on in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and you spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. You were just there for a week at the War College uh, teaching a, a seminar, so you have uh, a, a lot of fresh observations, but uh, the, the, the clear issue of the day is the, uh, the murder of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and, uh, and you and I both knew uh, Jamal uh, to, to one extent or another. Uh, in our uh, uh, our wanderings across the never-ending uh, scholarship of uh, Saudi affairs and and Middle East uh, relations, one one is never uh, an expert, but always a student of, of what's going on there because it's it's a never-ending uh, uh, alleyway of, of complications. But uh, but let's. Uh, take a look at where we are with the relationship with Saudi Arabia. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi in early October peeled back a little bit of the uh, inside relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States that most Americans were satisfied not to be paying too much attention to. Over the years, there have been disruptions in the relationship, which uh, is now 70 or more years old. Uh, for example, the uh, oil embargo in, in the 70s, and then uh, the 9-11 aftermath, uh, but now this uh, Khashoggi affair uh, has exposed a, a new raw nerve that Americans are outraged by the murder of an American resident journalist who was a columnist for the, uh, the Washington Post. And at first the Saudis uh, claimed that uh, they didn't know anything about his disappearance. And now we're at the point where 17 individuals have been uh, identified and sanctions laid on by the U.S. State Department and continuing accusations that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince and heir apparent, and uh, in fact the uh, the day-to-day -day ruler of the kingdom and, and center of uh, most of the levers of power in the kingdom, 
uh, may have been directly uh, involved. What What are your thoughts on uh, how we got to where we are in this affair, and and where uh, where Americans should understand uh, what uh, what our equities are in, uh, in, in in as this unfolds? Yeah, it really is an extraordinary time and an extraordinary incident. I mean, I was just reflecting. You know, one of the things that's come out of this is it's allowed uh, Erdogan of Turkey to position himself as a champion of press freedom, whereas a year ago the main story was his bodyguards beating up protesters in Washington, yeah. D.C. Um, you know, and he's been masterful at, at dripping out information in ways to just cause the Saudis maximum anguish, pain, and squirming. Um, so there's a couple things. First off, when you talk to um, Saudis about this, and, and I was with uh, a, a different group of Saudis when the news first came out and you had the first version of the story, and the story's changed. Uh, uh, every, every time the Saudis put out the story, uh, Erdogan released some information that you know, forced them to change tack and change the narrative. When it first came out, and talking to individual Saudis, some of whom are in positions of responsibility, they all say, this isn't how we do business. Uh, this is this is an aberration uh, in Saudi government behavior. Uh, now, human rights situation is is not acceptable uh, in, in most of the Gulf countries, and well, actually in all of the Gulf countries by any American standards. Mm -hmm. And Saudi Arabia does, um, you know, execute people for things that we uh, don't consider to be crimes, sorcery, things of that nature. But that being said, by their own lights, when they when they do do these things, they follow their own legal procedures. The idea of an extrajudicial um, assassination with this level of, of viciousness um, really takes guys back. It's not something that they're comfortable with, that they see as part of... Um, I, I haven't heard anybody say, you know, well, you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, or any of these casual sort of assertions that, you know, this is what we do, this is what we need to do. So, so I think this is an aberration. It, it better be an aberration if the relationship's going to stay strong, but it, it doesn't seem to be within the acceptable range of, of um, political action for Saudi Arabia. That being said, um, it was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. Yeah, well, that being said, they did it. Yeah, that's right. It was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. And, um, you know, in their choice of target, uh, their choice of victim was remarkably, you know, as, as you know, Jamal was... Um, uh, charming. He was uh, well-spoken. He was known to pretty much everybody in, in uh, American Middle East study circles. Um, he, uh, he had views that uh, were not in keeping with the current trend of Saudi political thought, but he was a, a function. He was in close to the inner circle, you know, under previous kings, and he, he was not a, a dissident in the traditional sense. He, he was just allied with a faction of the royal family that was currently out of power. So it's, it's a horrible, horrible move. Now, going forward, you know, these calls from uh, members of Congress to somehow punish the crown prince, I just don't see how we can do that. Uh, if, if there is to be change uh, in the Saudi royal family, in the Saudi line of succession, uh, chances are pretty good it will happen without us knowing it. it. It will have to be Saudis. And one of the big questions that nobody really knows is, has the crown prince established such a grip on power that he can't be removed? And quite frankly, if he can't be removed, then we have to look at uh, finding a way to live with him, um, as we did, you know, when France blew up the Rainbow Warrior uh, in Auckland, New Zealand, under the direction of President Mitterrand. Um, 
you know, we didn't allow that to disrupt our relations. Um, these things happen from time to time. And, uh, you know, our, our strategic interests remain the same. They're not in casting Saudi Arabia into the outer darkness. Uh, let me, if I could put just an undernote on this. One of the things about this that's different from a few other, you know, there have been incidents where Americans have died overseas uh, at the hands of governments that are friendly or somewhat allied with us or that are our security partners. What makes this uh, so bad, aside from the fact that the guy was a columnist for the Washington Post, I mean, my goodness, you can't imagine a worse one, is the fact that um, the, Washington, the Washington foreign policy establishment in general dislikes President Trump so much that, uh, you know, something that would have gotten a pass with other presidents, uh, regardless of party, um, they're not giving him a pass here because this is an example to show how when you get a guy who, you know, has taken pride in his lack of, um, you know, foreign involvement and, and his, his uh, disregard for the conventions of diplomacy as it's been practiced, um, when you deal with something like this, uh, it kind of it kind of casts him in a negative light, and I think people really um, have an interest in keeping the issue alive as a, as a way of embarrassing the president. He also has uh, people on his side, typically the, the Republicans in the Senate, for example, who um, are very concerned about what happened in the Khashoggi affair and are mm -hmm. vocal about it, and in some cases uh, calling for action to be taken. Yeah. So, so it's not just the uh, never Trumpers. Oh no no it's not never Trump's it's the whole it's the whole policy establishment but um, you know five years ago Lindsey Graham was a Republican Donald Trump was a Democrat <laughs> you know I mean he he really is an outsider um, and uh, you know people who go to Davos and all that uh, you know uh, really dislike the guy uh, but but you're right I mean it is it is always hard to defend the indefensible sure. and it's particularly hard for this president to defend the indefensible um, and he he doesn't do a good job of doing it he he, he doesn't do himself uh, his remarks uh, quite frankly uh, were just incomprehensible um, uh, from from a strategic standpoint and uh, he would have done much better just to say well you know foreign policy talk to the State Department or something like that right so uh, this, in, in the past, he, had, he has confounded conventional wisdom in getting elected president by communicating directly with people, casting aside the filter of the Washington foreign policy establishment. This is one instance where I think he should have taken on that uh, mantle, hidden a little bit. And sure. He's taking heat, and he should. But in the, in the case of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, I, I, I tend to agree that there's not an outside uh, mechanism to... Uh, bring enough pressure to bear where he has to step aside. He's yeah. he's clearly uh, King Salman, as uh, as some observers, including uh, Senator Bob Corker, when he was speaking at a Tennessee World Affairs Council luncheon uh, last month, uh, remarked that uh, the king was, uh, in his words, incoherent. Uh, so it's not uh, as if the king is going to remove MBS. And as you observed, uh, the question is, uh, how much power it lies outside of Mohammed bin Salman's control that might uh, challenge him as uh, as the heir to the throne, and we're going to be uh, you know he's in his 30s and, and given the longevity of most uh, Saudi rulers, uh, he's going to be around for 40 50 years uh, or longer, and we're going to have to uh, 
look at uh, what that means for the U.S.-Saudi relationship and the, and what we're uh, what we seek to accomplish uh, in the Gulf. Um, what what are your thoughts on the, the the long view? Well, assuming that we can remove, change, punish the Crown Prince's hubris, um, we don't we don't have that ability, as you said. So we have to plan to work with him uh, to preserve our interests and to highlight our interests and to ensure that things like this don't happen again. Now, we have a lot of experience in working with authoritarian countries that have eventually reformed. If you look at Latin America in the 70s, um, you know, almost the entire continent was ruled by right-wing repressive governments. Uh, now, all of, most of those countries have become democracies. Uh, and really, the only authoritarian states in Latin America these days are, are left-wing. Um, so, we can do it, but you know it's it, it is possible to pursue a strategic relationship with a country where we have uh, concerns about human rights, but we have other shared interests. It, it requires a lot of skill, and uh, you know it's harder now in the era of you know instant news and social media and things of that nature. But we've done it in the past, and our interests are so great, and they coincide so closely with Saudi Arabia that I don't see any any other way out. We, we really are in a relationship with each other that um, will have to weather uh, the, the fallout from the Khashoggi murder. And uh, the question is, how are we going to find a way to do that? You know, you know, diplomacy is, is the art of, of making hypocrisy palatable. Um, we need some diplomats and we need some diplomacy here. Um, so far, that has not proven to be President Trump's strong point, but um, the interests are so great, I think we're going to have to find a way to do it. To be sure. Well, I'm going to ask you for your uh, closing comments here in a, sec in a second, Dave, but first I want to remind our listeners that this is the Global Tennessee Podcast from the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and we come to you every two weeks uh, with a regular broadcast and uh, intermittently with uh, special reports like the one today where we have the uh, great privilege of talking with Professor David DeRoche from the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C. Dave, why don't you uh, give us your closing thoughts on what Americans should be thinking about uh, what's going on in the Middle East. It's a complicated place. Uh, some people call it whack-a-mole when you pay attention to one uh, pop-up target. Uh, it, it pressures something else somewhere in the region. There's the Israel-Palestine situation, the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, the the battle in Yemen. Uh, I mean, there's it, it's uh, to, to quote an army officer I knew of uh, some repute years ago, a dog's breakfast. <laughs> yeah, well, there there are certain trends that go on. The first one is. Um, the ability of the states, of, of all the states in the Middle East, to provide services to their citizens that is acceptable, that their citizens will be happy with just from oil revenues, that's no longer happening. The populations are getting too big, the oil revenues are decreasing, the expectations are rising. So all of these countries are going to have to reform how they do business in a fundamental way, or else they're going to have to deal with a lot of political instability, which may, may capsize them. The second one is... Um, Iran has not changed. <laughs> there really is uh, uh, an expansionist um, revolutionary philosophy in Iran which ebbs and flows, but I've never seen it fundamentally change. And sometimes, you know, it's an open question as to 
who really controls the Iranian government? Is it a civilian government or is it an IRGC-led thing? And uh, that is very apparent to our partners in, in the region. Uh, sometimes it's less apparent to us here. So we have to keep our eyes on this. And, and the things that concern us most, the nuclear threat, for example, that's not what concerns them. What concerns them is the idea of insurgencies being promoted from Tehran. We never really paid proper attention to that in a, in a way that assuages our partners' concern. The third one is trade, um, and not just not just uh, uh, trans, transport of um, energy back and forth, but um, the global uh, energy market. Um, we are now a bigger player in that than we were 10 years ago. And uh, we could have a much more productive relationship um, and, and more universally achieved benefits in partnership with uh, our security partners, if our security partners were even more economic partners in the region. Um, that's something that I think we haven't put as, as much effort into as we could have under successive administrations. So there still is a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think that just... Um, you know, I'm not calling for a Marshall Plan or a huge engagement, but I think that if there was a little bit more synchronization of, of the aspects of our political reform agenda, our military security agenda, which recognizes the threats as our partners see it, and then our, our economic and trade policy, I think we, there are, there's some dividends to be reaped. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we've been talking today with uh, Professor David DeRoche from the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, and this is the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, thank you for listening, and please share with your friends that the Global Tennessee Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud.com, and we appreciate you stopping over there and putting in a positive uh, review of how we're doing, and also remember to any time tell us uh, where we can uh, address some issues of international concerns that you might have uh, in our podcast or in our program uh, programming at the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, just drop us uh, a, a note at info at tnwac.org. We invite you to become members. You can uh, find out information about joining the Tennessee World Affairs Council at tnwac.org or making a gift. Uh, the end of the year is coming up, so take a look at your income tax balance sheet. We're a 501c3 tax-deductible organization and would be happy to uh, write a letter thanking you for your gift that you can pass to your tax accountant at the end of the year and help uh, alleviate the load there. So thanks again for listening to Global Tennessee. This is Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.